Again, if you would please, for the reading from the scripture, we are in Acts chapter 18 and verse 18, and I will read into chapter 9 a little bit uh, down to verse 7. Acts 18, 18 through 9, 19, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them, Priscilla and Aquila, there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. He may be seated. What I've just read for you is one of the more difficult sections in the book of Acts in that there are questions that it prompts that are difficult to answer and about which there are many different perspectives. These two back-to-back episodes at the end of chapter 18 and the 12 Ephesian believers at the beginning of chapter 19 do belong together. Both are about Christian believers whose theology needs correcting. In both instances, the deficit in their understanding has to do with John's baptism. That is, the baptism of John the Baptist. And some elements of this text have raised questions in the mind of some, Were Apollos and the Twelve in Ephesus really Christians? What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus? How and when does the believer in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit? What ought that experience to be like? And so on. And we'll touch on those things today. 
Yet despite the fog surrounding this text, there are a few things that can be said with confidence, and these things are of central importance for a vital church and for a vital personal faith. So let's revisit the text and acquaint ourselves with what's going on. When we pick up this narrative in Acts 18, verse 18, Paul is wrapping up his second missionary journey. His first journey had been a a there and back again trip that took him through some of the region north of the Mediterranean. As far as about 400 kilometers from his home, his missionary base in Antioch, Syria. This second journey that he's on has taken him now about 1,000 kilometers from home over a period of three years half of which he has spent in the city of Corinth. And that's where he is as our text begins today. After this, we read, that is, after the events of the first half of chapter 18, Paul stayed many days in Corinth longer. And this second missionary journey of Paul has seen Paul opposed often viciously and often either kicked out after city after city or having the Christians hustle him out of the city for his own protection. He's faced character assassination, slander. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He has been contemptuously dismissed in Athens. And finally, in Corinth, he is established by God and has a long, fruitful ministry there of a year and six months, or many days, it says in verse 18. But then he took leave of the brothers in Corinth and set sail for Syria, that is, for home. And verse 18 also tells us that Priscilla and Aquila went with him. He'd been working with them in Corinth as a tent maker. They become good friends in ministry. Romans 16 verse 4 says that at one point they risked their necks for him and that the whole ministry to the Gentiles owes them a great debt. And so together, these three, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, sail across the Aegean Sea, which separates Greece from Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, Now, you might remember from a few weeks ago that previously Paul had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Well, two years later, here he is. God's timing is perfect. It's been famously said that God has three answers to prayer. Either yes or no, if what we're praying for isn't healthy or right. And sometimes the answer is yes, but not yet. And when he answers that, we might think that the answer is no for a long time. Paul didn't make it to Asia until two years after he first tried. He had been forbidden, but only for a time. And it's possible that your prayers for somebody, for the salvation of someone, for the healing of someone, for a full-out revival in the church, in the city, or for children, or for your marriage, or you name it. God's answer to your prayer might just be, I've got it covered. There are things that you don't know, so just wait and let me look after the timing. And sometimes that will be years. So Paul finally now comes to Ephesus and he preaches there for a time in his usual manner. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That's what he always does. But he doesn't stay this time because he's on his his way home. Even though they ask him to stay, he doesn't. So he sets sail for home from Ephesus. 
Now, two things to notice real quickly. One, that Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus now. Paul leaves them there. Verse 19, now, it sounds like Paul leaves his job with them. He, he quits, he serves notice so that he can preach in the city. It might just mean, though, that Paul knows he's about to go home and just leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. But either way, Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. The second thing to notice is that Paul's made a conditional promise to Ephesus to return. I will return to you if God wills. Well, it turns out he does return, and he comes into play then, beginning of chapter 19. So Paul returns home, sails to Caesarea, which is a seaport in Judea. He travels up to the church in Jerusalem. In the Bible, people always go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. Paul goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church, and goes down to Antioch, which is his home base. And after some time there, we don't know how much time, he leaves on his third now missionary journey, revisiting some of the churches that he's been to already twice on his previous journeys. And just for interest's sake, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, and I know that you all have your Bibles on your lap and are open right now, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, the last map is probably a map of the missionary journeys of Paul. And you'll see there that Paul retraces his steps three times over these years. And if you like marking things in your Bible, you might want to notice that Paul leaves on his first journey in Acts 13, verses 3 and 4. His second journey on Acts 15, verse 40. And now on his third journey here in chapter 8, 18 and verse 23. And as far as we know, he never returns to Antioch again. Now, as Paul is returning home and then beginning his third journey, things are happening in Ephesus. Another missionary comes to town. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos from Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately of the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos comes from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Alexandria rivaled Athens as a center of learning. The greatest library in the Roman world was there. Alexandria had a very large Jewish population, including Philo, the Jewish thinker of the first century, who lived there during the time of Christ in the early church. Maybe Apollos even knew him. It's possible. The Jewish scriptures had been translated from Hebrew into Greek by Jewish scholars in Alexandria in the second century B.C., and whenever the New Testament apostles quote the Old Testament, they're quoting this Greek translation. So the impact of Alexandria on the first century Jewish world is enormous. And out of that comes Apollos. And so when we read about his eloquence and his competency in the scripture, we can bet that that is no exaggeration. He's brilliant of mind, he's compelling of speech, and he is fervent or passionate about what he is doing. But there is a deficit in his teaching. And it's related to the fact that he knew only the baptism of John. And I'll come back to that in a few moments when we look at the beginning of chapter 19. 
But in any event, when Priscilla and Aquila hear Apollos teaching, they immediately take initiative and pull him aside and teach him themselves. Now, some preachers and New Testament commentators have read this passage and concluded that Apollos was religious but was not really a Christian. But there's There's no warrant in the text for that, I think. He knew the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, that is, Jesus. He was passionate about his teaching about Jesus. And he taught the things of Jesus accurately. Now, some some could be well-versed in the scriptures. And you may be able to speak well. You may have been instructed in the way of the Lord. But it's hard for me to believe that one can be passionate about the things of Jesus if one is not a Christian. So I don't think there's any question that there's a genuine commitment to Jesus here, even if he doesn't have all of his theological ducks in a row. Someone has said that we all have 20% of our theology wrong, but none of us knows which 20% it is. But there is a center, and it is Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his lordship, and that forgiveness of sin comes through him. And the 20% of our theology that we can get wrong ought to be about things like speaking in tongues and the role of Israel in the end times and the proper practice of baptism and the age of the universe and such things. If Christians have different perspectives on these things, these peripheral things, I don't think that's a big deal, but if we get the core wrong concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're in trouble. And I think not only did Apollos not get this core wrong, but he taught these things passionately. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus Christ with passion. And no one who's not a Christian can teach passionately the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the gospel of forgiveness in him. But there were some things in which he had not been accurate in his teaching. So Priscilla and Aquila again take him aside and teach him. And apparently Apollos is teachable. So when he decides later to leave Ephesus and cross the Aegean Sea to Corinth, he is sent there with the full endorsement of the Ephesian church. And then in Corinth, he has a powerful ministry doing the kinds of things that Paul always did preaching Christ from the scriptures. And on a side note, perhaps, his ministry in Corinth was effective, so effective, in fact, that later on, Paul had to write the church there and tell them to quit arguing about who was better, whether it was Paul or Apollos or even Jesus. But that was all about Jesus. So Apollos apparently did very well. In Corinth, there were rival Paul and Apollos Fan clubs. And it's always risky for us, even in the church in our day, to become devotees of a particular preacher or a particular ministry. Our attachment is to Jesus. Period. So Apollos, again, comes to Ephesus, preaches Jesus accurately, needs some correcting on some things. And Priscilla and Aquila, as his theological mentors teach him, and his ministry is then only strengthened. Then we come to chapter 19. And Paul now has done his usual cycle of churches around the Mediterranean, revisiting Derby and Lystra, Iconium, as he passes through Galatia and Phrygia. And unlike his earlier experiences in chapter 16, this time he travels through the region of Asia. 
which he could not do before. And comes again to Ephesus, which he had left just a few months, maybe a whole year before. And by now, Apollos is gone and is in Corinth. And in Ephesus, he meets some people who, in some respects, are similar to Apollos. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there, he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said... No, you haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, again, the fact that these... Twelve Ephesian disciples are Christian has been challenged by some on theological grounds because they have not received the Holy Spirit, or at least they didn't know it if they did, and because they had not been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And yet the text clearly calls these twelve men disciples, and that word in Acts is always used to mean Christians. And Paul apparently doesn't question the fact that they believed, and that word too is used in Acts, of Christians who responded by faith to the gospel concerning Jesus. So these men are disciples who have believed the gospel. But like Apollos, their understanding is deficient. And like Apollos, their deficit has to do with the baptism of John. It was all that they knew. And I think then that they probably came to faith in Jesus via the ministry of Apollos. And that they were taught by him and therefore gained his understanding of the baptism of John. So Paul explains, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one to come. That is Jesus. So what is meant by John's baptism? We need to go there to understand this passage. So back up in biblical history a little bit. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. When the angel Gabriel foretold John's birth, this is what he said. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, and that he would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke chapter 1. And after John was born, his father, Zechariah, prophesied to John by the Holy Spirit. And he said, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then 30 years later, when John himself described his ministry, he said, in what I think is an astonishing expression of humility, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's role, John's ministry, was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And he did that by calling people to repent and then baptizing them. The baptism at the time of John was not an uncommon practice. For the Jews, it meant repentance. And baptism then signified, in a symbolic way, a washing from sin and an arising out of the water to a, a life of renewed commitment to God. For Gentiles, if they were not a Jew, but they wanted to become a Jew... That is, they wanted to formally embrace the religion of the Jews. They wanted to be initiated as a worshiper of the God of the Jews. 
then the ritual by which they did that was baptism. And baptism there too meant that they had repented of their sins and they were now publicly identifying themselves as or with the people of God. And that, by the way, is still the essential significance of baptism. But John's baptism was a preparatory baptism. Still signified repentance, signified identification with the God of Israel and with his people. But John, with his baptizing, also preached. He preached that the God of Israel was actually coming. That the kingdom of God was imminent. And John's baptizing of people was to get people ready for the coming of the Lord and the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul then says of John that he baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, Jesus. John's baptism was a a forward-looking baptism. But by the time Paul comes to Ephesus, what John had been preparing for was already an accomplished fact. The Lord, whose coming John had prepared the people for, had come. In the person of Jesus. And the forgiveness that follows repentance had been obtained through Jesus by virtue of his death and his resurrection. And identification with God and his people was now revealed to be via identification with Jesus. And one becomes a part of the people of God by being a part of the community of Christ's followers. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so afterwards, and for the church, baptism became identification, not just with God generally or generically, but with Jesus specifically. When Jesus, after his resurrection, was about to return to the glory of the presence of God his Father, he commissioned his followers then and now to make disciples, there's that word again, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey, better to observe or live according to, all that Jesus had commanded them. So in a nutshell, John's baptism, which both Apollos and the twelve men in Ephesus were familiar with, was a baptism that signified repentance from sin and that that was meant to prepare one's heart for the anticipated coming of the Lord. Christian baptism, on the other hand, anchored people in the already accomplished fact of the coming of the Lord and his already completed atonement for their sins and for our sins. And when these Ephesian Christians understood more fully that baptism was now a fuller significance, and that they understood that in the context of the worship of and allegiance to the Lord Jesus then they are eager to be baptized, and they are, presumably by Paul. And both John the Baptist and Paul, here in Acts, link baptism with the Holy Spirit. John said, remember, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when Paul asks these Ephesian Christians if they've received the Holy Spirit in their conversion, and they say they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, Paul's immediate question is, well, into what then were you baptized? Paul is clearly surprised that disciples of Jesus are unaware of the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And he makes that connection of their lack of experience and understanding of the Holy Spirit 
with some deficit in their understanding and experience of baptism. And as they are then baptized by Paul, part of that event involves Paul's laying his hands on them, at which time the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And there is then visible, observable evidence to them and to others that the Holy Spirit has come to them. It reminds us of Acts 10, when at the preaching of Peter, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius in his household, and it stunned the Christians at that time that unclean Gentiles could be included in this new people of God centered in Jesus. It's reminiscent of Acts chapter 8, when Samaritans believe and are baptized, when Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritans. They receive the Holy Spirit. And so even the hated Samaritans could be part of the people of God. It's reminiscent of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came on the first followers of Jesus and they too spoke in tongues and prophesied, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ with unusual power and with unusual effectiveness. This does not mean, by the way, that every Christian will, for example, speak in tongues when they become a Christian or that the Holy Spirit will manifest himself in a person's life by this kind of experience. We haven't read of experiences like this in the conversion of people in Antioch or Iconium or Lystra or Derby or Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. But we do read it here in Ephesus. And it's hard to say why this is different. Um, many very competent scholars in the New Testament have suggested that much like Acts 2 and 8 and 10... That that this mini Pentecost occurs because it marks the next phase in the expanding circle of the ministry of the gospel. That that Ephesus is the new base of ministry in the Gentile world and that these men are the nucleus of the church here. But the ministry to the Gentiles has been going on for years before this point. And we've already read in Acts 18 verse 19 that Paul has already preached here. In that 18 verse 27, that the brothers, that is fellow believers in Ephesus, that have sent Apollos to Corinth, and that Apollos has been preaching here for some time, that Priscilla and Aquila have been here for some time. So I can't imagine that these are the very first Ephesian Christians. And so it doesn't seem at all likely, I think, that the Holy Spirit comes in this fashion to signal that something new is going on, that a new frontier in ministry is being crossed. It seems to me that the best explanation for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit here is the simplest explanation. That as Christians who did not understand the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit, because they had not been adequately taught, that these men were given an experience of the Holy Spirit in a context in which they could understand the Holy Spirit and understand his presence in the life of the Christian and of his relationship, the Holy Spirit's relationship, to belief in Jesus and to baptism. Or maybe more accurately, in this passage, they come to understand that belief in Jesus is inextricably linked to both baptism and the Holy Spirit. That belief and baptism and the Holy Spirit belong together. They always have. So let's briefly talk about those three things. First, belief. What is it? 
We normally think of belief as something that we hold in our minds, some conviction that something is true. I believe, for example, that Christopher Columbus actually did sail to the New World in 1492. I don't know it, but the historical record convinces me, and so I believe it. And belief is used in the Bible in this way, but only very rarely. For example, James chapter 2, we read, So you believe that God is one? Well, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Even demons know the facts and know that it's true. But almost exclusively in the New Testament, the word belief is used to describe that receiving of the proclaimed gospel of Jesus in such a way that leads to surrender to his lordship, to repentance and faith, to becoming a follower of Jesus. It's not a purely intellectual affirmation of the facts, but it's having that belief define how you live your life. We call that kind of belief faith. So if we ask somebody on the street or maybe somebody even beside you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? They might say yes, by which they mean, yes, I believe that he is God's son who came to die for our sins. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe the Bible's true and what it says about him, and so I identify myself on all forms as a Christian. But when the Bible asks, when God asks, do you believe in Jesus? The answer that he is looking for is, yes, I believe that he is God's son who died for sins and rose again. I believe the Bible is true and what it says about him, and therefore... As forgiveness is only a gift of God's grace that comes to us through Jesus, because of the perfection of Jesus, and because of his death as a perfect sacrifice, I will accept that his death is enough. And I'll quit trying to earn God's favor after the fact by being good. Instead, I will marvel at this great gift and live in the joy of being loved like that. And since the Bible says Jesus is Lord, I will live accordingly, as if my time is his. As if he gets to choose my career. And as if my money and my relationships are his. And since he is good, I'll trust him with it all. And with my circumstances. In fact, since I'm created for him, and since he said that he came to give life, to bring life to the full, I will trust that the life that is most satisfying to me is the life that seeks Jesus' delight and honor above all other considerations. All. And when I do all of this inadequately, I'll trust that I haven't let him down, but that it's all forgiven and that God still loves me and I'm still secure. And so I'll marvel at the reality that, I'll so marvel at that reality that I want to live in his grace even more and live under his lordship even more and seek his honor even more. So yes, I believe in Jesus. So I've fleshed out a little bit in terms of what that looks like for us. But it's nothing more than what the apostles have said in Acts already, repeatedly. That he's God's chosen one who clearly lived a supernatural life. That he died for sin and was raised to life by the power of God. That he is both Savior from sin and Lord of all. And that all of this is consistent with what God has said before the fact through his prophets. And therefore we are called to repent. To live differently because of all this. Whenever the first Christians proclaimed Jesus, that's what they said. And this is the kind of belief that Jesus talked about in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him like this 
should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus? This kind of belief is intimately connected with baptism in the name of Jesus. And in Acts, we repeatedly again read that those who believed were immediately baptized. Peter's call it Pentecost. What should we do? Repent and be baptized. Samaritans in chapter 8, when they believed, they were baptized. The Ethiopian in chapter 8 was baptized. Paul in chapter 9 was baptized. Cornelius was baptized, and so on. And of course, all of this is because Jesus himself commanded that we make disciples and baptize them. And baptism, as we've already said, is a demonstration of repentance and the identification of oneself with Jesus, that one affirms Jesus as Savior from sin and as Lord of one's life. In the act of baptism, which is the immersion into the water and then being raised out of it, gives a visual, visible picture of a spiritual dying and resurrection, the, the ending of one life in the beginning of a new and Jesus-centered life. And it becomes then the action or the sign that declares the reality of belief. And I suppose, for example, then, that a man and a woman could meet, could fall in love, and could live together all of their lives in faithfulness and with a deep commitment to one another, maybe have a family without the ceremony of marriage, and that that's not necessarily dishonoring to the biblical model of marriage. Life, faithfulness, commitment. And yet we love the idea of a wedding where before witnesses we publicly and formally declare that lifelong commitment and faithfulness to each other. And at a wedding we say before God and before each other, I belong to her all of my life. I will seek her good above my own. In good times and in sorrow, I will be by her side. I vow that I will live my whole life in the context of my love for her. And the Bible affirms this too. There are weddings in the Bible. And God even uses the imagery of a wedding to describe what happens between God and his people. Not just a love of God and people for each other, but the declaration of that love, the vow to love one another with action and in truth, for as long as we both shall live. How long is that? For eternity. And baptism, then, is our public making of vows. I know I'm forgiven and I'm thankful. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. I'll live my life under his lordship. But let me declare that publicly. Let me tell you that this is the life that I have joyfully and lovingly committed to for as long as I live. That's, that's baptism. It's the belief declared. So a baptism of anticipation or repentance getting ready for the Lord, John's baptism, is not Christian baptism. Dressing up for your first date is not a wedding. Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus says that the shadow of the future coming of the Lord has become the substance of the past and present. He has come, and I belong to him now and always will. And if we believe in Jesus, we need to be baptized. That's God's way. It's in keeping with Jesus' words and with biblical practice. 
And there will be opportunity in the fall for you to pursue that here. So tuck that away. You will hear more about that. But belief and baptism even do not stand alone. If they did, we might find ourselves thinking that we are the primary actors. But we are not. In this relationship, God is the primary actor. And so Paul then, asking those who believe and assuming their baptism, then asks naturally about the Holy Spirit. And it's their bewildered answer, what, what Holy Spirit? That's the signal to him that they don't understand the fullness of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And I've previously preached on the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does, so I won't do that in detail now. But in broad strokes, the Holy Spirit is personal and he is divine. And his essential intimacy and union with God the Father and God the Son is what makes up the Trinity. Three distinct persons, but one God. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who first declared through the prophets that the Savior and Lord was coming. It's the Holy Spirit who introduces one to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who enables one to understand one's need for him. It's the Holy Spirit who makes the change in one's heart and enables and even evokes a response of belief. And back to our wedding analogy, as imperfect as it is, the Holy Spirit, track with this, The Holy Spirit sets up the first date, causes you to fall in love, prompts the yes to God's proposal. He performs a ceremony. He enables you to keep your vows. And he is actually the ring on yours and Jesus' finger. He is himself the sign and the pledge that you belong to each other. And so it's unthinkable for Paul, for believers then and even now, I think, that they would be unaware of the Holy Spirit. Oh, again, people think all kinds of things about how the Spirit manifests himself in one's life, but we all believe that he does in some way, and that he should. Character, actions, how we live, signs. For those who believe in Jesus, the evidence of the Holy Spirit will be there, even if at first you don't know that it's him. Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? For that's how we know that we belong to Jesus. That's how we know if our belief is more than just an affirmation of the facts, and if our baptism is a true declaration of love and commitment, not just a church rite of passage. Do you see growth in the fruit of the Spirit? In your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Do you find your capacity to love God and people increasing? Do your actions and your values align increasingly with those of Jesus? Is there trust in God in all of your circumstances? Is there a holding loosely of all the things you might otherwise be tempted to think are yours? You may speak in tongues, as did these and others in Acts. But Paul himself said that an active, demonstrated love for one another in the church, an active service for the sake of the health and the effectiveness of the church, is a far more important and therefore a far more credible evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence. 
belief and baptism and the Holy Spirit all belong together and, in a sense, make up a sort of trinity of Christian experience. Do you believe in Jesus? Ask that of your heart. Do you believe in Jesus? Is he both the Lord and the love of your life? Are you baptized? Will you make that public declaration of love? Will you make that vow of commitment? And if you are baptized, will you think back to that declaration and reaffirm it today if you need to? And is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? In your heart toward Jesus? In your character and in your actions? And no matter the answer to those three questions, the the appropriate response to any of them is to turn your attention to Jesus. Who died for your sin. Who lives now and forever. Who is a loving Lord. And in whom, and only in whom, is life to the full. Do you believe that? Let me pray. Amen. It's very easy, Lord, for me to call myself a Christian and for us as parts of a church to call ourselves Christians and to say that we believe in Jesus. But we know that to believe in Jesus is to be drawn ever deeper into a deep, committed, ongoing relationship of love and obedience and trusting. And I thank you that you've called so many of us to that kind of belief. Help us to deepen in it. And if there are some here this morning who have never believed like that, who are content to just attach Jesus' name to their life but not attach attach their life to Jesus' name, that you'll bring conviction by the Spirit and lead them to belief. I pray that you will help us to know your love for us and to grow in our love for you and to understand what that means and what it looks like. As we have in many ways been taught accurately the things of Jesus, may we know them more accurately more fully, to a deeper level and a greater experience. By the power of the Holy Spirit, unite us increasingly to Jesus. And Jesus, it is in your name, by virtue of your lordship and divinity and your death and your resurrection, that we pray these things to you, O God, our Father how we need you to act in our lives and our church. Amen.